0: This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to this live episode of the Spice Bags Podcast. My name is Dee Laffen. This is May Chin. And this is Blanca Valencia, and we're the co-hosts of the Spice Bag Podcast. For anyone who doesn't know who we are, we're an award-winning podcast that focuses on the international community in Ireland around food. Um, we've often interviewed people from with focuses from different countries like Venezuela, Brazil, uh, Poland, um, and just getting to know people who are here um, as immigrants originally to the country or from mixed heritage but who are all part of the same community as we are and that we we all here uh, focusing on food and what we love most, which is eating. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, we're delighted to be part of Samhain Festival and thank you so much to the guys for asking us to come down to do this. Um, so we are going to be talking to Lorena and Alan Kraus from Kalua Castle. But first of all, we just thought in the spirit of the festival, we would have a little discussion about um, Samhain as a festival and the foods, I suppose, that are associated with it, but also with Halloween and with um, Dias los Muertes, excuse my really bad... Todos
2: los Santos.
1: Yeah, and Todos los Santos, Um, you know, festivals and, and I suppose that focus on this time of year... Um, which is when the veil between, I suppose, us and the spirits and 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 that kind of world um, is at its thinnest. And we are heading into winter, heading into darkness. Um, so that's what we're here to talk about. So we're going to do a little bit about that now. I just want to let you guys know, I don't know if you know, that Samhain in Celtic lore, which I suppose where it comes from, is the... Is, the year is divided into two halves and with dark and light and obviously the dark half begins at the sunset on November 1st which is Samhain and the cycle ends when the light half begins on the 1st of May on the sunset on the 1st of May and that's Bealtaine, which is the other festival that we celebrate here in Ireland and both festivals are closely linked in general but you know Samhain is seen as the most important and in the olden days they um extensive preparations were made for sharing of a communal feast did you guys know that about feasting around
0: Saun, or do have you ever heard of that I was so surprised and it reminded me of being Chinese and the way we celebrate um our dead is always through feasting yeah. so I was a det- detail that you know I was new to, and I was like, oh, that's cool.
1: Yeah, apparently to, um, the communal feast was to kind of included for the dearly departed were the honors of, the guests of honor, I should say, and to enable them to come and go freely, all the doors and windows were left unlatched. Um, A special cake was made exclusively for their consumption, and a certain amount of other food was set aside for them. I think you see that in Mexican, that's what they do, isn't it? Yeah, I
2: think uh, last week I was at the Mexican embassy celebrating Dia de los Muertos, And different communities around Ireland had done... The altars or tombs where you uh, honor a dead person and some of them were famous people. Normally you find Frida Kahlo, the painter, is very common, but there was also a pilot who landed uh, safely in Ireland and saved a lot of people who was being honored. But uh, they have uh, ofrendas, like these food offerings that you have on the tombs or on the altars, like pan de muerto, but they had everything, tortillas. Lily Ramirez from Picado also had an altar uh, dedicated to her dad and to her father-in-law so like very emotional yeah but that asp- aspect of food that for example in Spain we don't bring food to the tombs like, yeah no yeah. we don't
1: do that here either and I suppose in Ireland we may not even though we're here to celebrate sound this beautiful festival but in general in Ireland people celebrate Halloween more so and that comes from the states but we were talking earlier that what is celebrated as Halloween in the U.S. actually comes from Ireland. So all the Irish people going over to the States brought Samhain over, used to carve turnips, not pumpkins. And all of those traditions kind of over the years have turned into Halloween. Would you have known that? in well, the States growing up?
0: Um, absolutely not. But, you know, again, reading about Samhain, um, just this idea of people disguising themselves and dancing and singing um, and going door to door, which I feel like is, is the origin of Trick yeah. or Treat. Um, so, yeah, all very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to confess that only four days ago did I know how to pronounce Saman. So that's <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's my knowledge. <laughs>
1: I mean, uh, it's a tricky one. <laughs> <laughs> this is
2: somebody who speaks Chinese, but she can't pronounce that You need to go to Irish school. I know.
1: <laughs> and was there, there anything like that in Chinese uh, culture? Or We
2: always,
0: I mean, we always have ghosts and demons and uh, hungry spirits and ancestors. Um, we have a ghost day that's not in November. It's actually usually at the end of August or the beginning of September. So I suppose that would be our autumn. Yeah. Um. And again, like Samhain, it's this idea that the veils between the dead and the living worlds start to get very transparent. And yeah. so the dead come and, you know, so you have your ancestors who you love and you'll share feasts with them, but you also have something called hungry spirits. And these are either spirits who've done, you know, bad things or have been forgotten. And so we also set out food to appease these hungry ghosts. Hungry Why are spirits? they hungry?
1: Why are hung- spirits hungry? Spirits always seem to be hungry in ha- like horror films and stuff. I don't understand. They don't get fed in the afterlife. Oh, that's true. <laughs> in China,
2: they also give them uh, paper Louis Vuitton bags and paper oh, yeah, Ferraris true. at the tombs. So you burn these Louis Vuitton handbag. For your It started uh, as money, but yes, yeah. it's gotten a little bit... Yeah. So you go to a shop the... and you buy all these paper things like, oh, my husband liked Ferraris and he liked this. So they have the paper. Um, they look like pinatas yeah. and, and it's actually really bad luck to buy it for anything else. But I find that fascinating about the, the way that the Chinese approach death that you'd go to somebody's tomb and burn uh, a Gucci paper bag. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's also, it's just, you know, we sweep our ancestors' tombs. I think that there's just, there's so much of death, and not necessarily in a negative way, but there is so much death, you know, in the way we just live our lives.
1: Yeah, definitely. And tell us a little bit about the Spanish traditions then for, I'm going to pronounce todos los santos? So todos los
2: santos is the day of the saints, whether they're canonized or not. And I don't know if you know this, but in Spain, uh, people have saints names. So um, until Franco died, it was mandatory to have a saint's name. So I was born in the Basque country and my name is Blanca. But My parents wanted to name me Suriñe, but they couldn't. It was illegal. So because you have a saint's name, saints are very important in Spain. And some people, instead of celebrating their birthday, you celebrate your saint's day. And on Todos los Santos, you have these huesos de santo that are made with marzipan. And you have the buñuelos, like the beñets. You have a lot of chestnuts. But it's it's a more solemn uh, affair. You know, I think... Death in Spanish uh, is more solemn. It's more boring. It's, it has nothing like Mexico or Latin America. It's really mm-hmm. kind Or Halloween. Yeah. It's a very serious kind of dour um, <laughs> approach to death.
1: <laughs> well, it's a happy time now. But... Um yeah, it's interesting just to reflect on that, and while we're here especially, and there's been so much amazing focus on food and Irish food here at the Sound Festival in Mead. So um, we might as well move on to our main event. Um, we're delighted to be joined by Alan and Lorena Krauss. Uh, we just spent the most fab um, afternoon at your home in Kalua Castle in Clonmelan. Um, for a farm walk which was part of the festival but just also getting to see all of the animals and um what you've done there and what you've achieved there and also a beautiful tour of the inside of the castle for anyone who hasn't been in best you're jealous it was absolutely amazing just to go around and see what you've done with it it was beautiful and um, so what we want to do is first of all I suppose we're going to get to Kalua, but we want to know about your journey to there I guess and your journey of meeting each other and let's go back to um, Lorena, you're from Mexico City, and I know you said that Alan is also from Mexico City, but you both have very different backgrounds in growing up with food. Can you tell us, Lorena, first, what was food for you growing
3: up in Mexico City? What was that like at home? Um, yes, uh, thank you for having us here, uh, Dee. Um, yes, uh, I, I was born and I grew up in Mexico City, and it's it's very funny because when you live in Mexico, um, there's something that happens that uh, we don't really have seasons. It's like one, we, we eat the same thing throughout the year. Maybe at some point, like in, in Christmas, you might have a specific fruit or a specific, but it's always throughout the year, we eat the same thing. So... It was not until I was 15 years old when I spent one year in Canada that I realized that there there were actually four seasons and that you eat whatever that season is giving you. Or in the case of Canada where the cold was so extreme, we would have minus 30 degrees and I knew just, just at this time of year they would start pickle everything, putting everything in, in jars. And, yeah. and they would have two enormous freezers where they would cut a whole cow and put it in the freezer. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, and throughout the winter, we would be eating out of that freezer. Amazing. They wouldn't have anything fresh. Yeah. And um, I'm talking about a few years ago. Yeah. So it was very, <laughs> after, after I came back from that trip, all my vision about food and people and culture completely changed. And uh, I started to see a lot of the limitations that we were seeing in Mexico mm-hmm. and uh, and the possibilities that there was something more and different out there. Yeah. So for me, that was the journey.
1: Amazing. And,
3: um, uh,
1: and Alan, for you growing up in Mexico City, because you have Austrian family as well and heritage, so was was food very different for you? Is that a different picture growing completely.
4: up? Completely. Actually, every time that I would go to a friend's house, I couldn't eat everything. Oh, yeah. Because I was used to something totally different. I grew up in Mexico, but eating uh, Wienerschnitzel and Tafelspitz and, and whatever you can imagine. <laughs> so, yeah, it was uh, a totally different experience. And again, for me, uh, that was completely normal. I thought that everybody ate like that until I had to go to a friend's house. And it was, okay, where's the sample the mustard? And there wasn't any, <laughs> or there was something yellow cold French that was disgusting and uh, this is not real mustard yeah <laughs> so yeah it was very different than the traditional person growing up in Mexico yeah and again for me it was the Austrian influence and also the spanish Catalan influence yes on the two sides of the family so again if you would have asked me as a child then things like a, or a escalivada would have been like perfectly normal but I think I ate my first taco probably when I was 16.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and who did the cooking for you growing up? Like, who was the main person in your home? That in my was... case, it
4: was my mother, although my grandfather had no problem getting into the kitchen. And there were some things that had to be made by my grandfather to be original and typical. For example, roasting the goose at Christmas had to be my grandfather, not my mother. Yeah.
3: And for you, Lorena, was your mom the main cook in the house or the main cook in the house was my mom, but she didn't like cooking. And I and I think that made a big impact on me because you see I I, I grew up not really appreciating good food uh, until a little before I met Alan, but it was really Alan, the one who got me into good food and good wine and nice <laughs> and appreciating and how it has evolved from there. Obviously it's very easy to get into fine and delicious food. But what we had developed from coming to Ireland, we, we, we started having relation with Ireland uh, 22 years ago. Yeah. That's when we uh, bought Kilua, um, But specifically, when we started developing the farm, it's the importance of traceability, the importance of where the food is coming from. Uh, and now, to me, that is the most important thing, it's it's not only fine food. It's like where is it coming from? What is behind this this plate? What is behind this this beef that we're eating? And I think that is the the, the big thing, yeah, an evolution that I had had, especially coming from uh, since I arrived in Ireland. Do you think that that was an influence from Irish culture of that
1: traceability of knowing where our food comes from? That like when you came here, you felt it. That- you know, you realize that that was something that's important to you and therefore it was important to you as well? Or were you aware
3: of that before? I, I personally wasn't aware. I think he was, but I, I'm not going to speak for him. Uh, I wasn't aware. But then we started like, I don't know, somebody came with local eggs. And I tried them and I said, wow, this tastes completely different. Where did you get them? And I was trying to, you know, tell, give it the name of the person that is sending you this <laughs> egg. So you start noticing that not all eggs are equal. Yeah. Okay, that there is a big difference. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, inadvertently, and because you had a lot of local producers and, um, and, and people that, you know, sell in markets, and they do taste different. The quality is different. And the reaction of my body to that food, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: I had a frivolous question. Um, which one of you is the better cook? And yes, and
3: <laughs>
4: actually, <laughs> can you name: it, My journey dish? to food is very funny because I was an incredibly naughty boy. I was an only child, and unbelievably naughty, so <laughs> one of the few ways of keeping me under control was sending me to the kitchen to do the most ignoble jobs, so they would send me to visit my great aunts, who were five ladies, all in their 80s or more Spencer. and the spinsters, <laughs> The only way in which they could control me was put me in the kitchen and make me work. So I actually learned techniques. And I learned 19th century techniques from them. And then, about age 13, uh, I saw in the school library a book called "The Great Chefs of France," and it was about the then three Michelin star uh, restaurants. But very much at the beginning of this. So, ben Fernand Pont was still uh, cooking in Vienne. Paul Bocuse was a young man who had just opened a restaurant in Lyon. So, it was uh, quite a long time ago. Uh, Alain Chapelle been all the great chefs of the time. And I read it, became fascinated by it. And at the end, it had recipes, but not recipes like you find in a cookbook. It was exactly the type of recipe that a chef like that would give you. Sort of a very vague description of a dish. And I would get into the kitchen on Saturdays, and I would cook for the family on Saturdays. And it started turning out reasonably well, and it was very enjoyable. And since then, I started cooking. Then I figured out that it was a great way to have dates, invite somebody and cook for them. And then I actually used to make uh, ice cream for Lorena when, <laughs> when I first met her. And yeah, it evolved from there, but I'm the cook at home. I cook every day.
0: Um, actually, um, going back to what you were saying, cooking in your past, um, in Mexico City, was it difficult to get the ingredients that you wanted?
4: It wasn't difficult at all, because first of all, again, uh, there was a German shop that my grandfather used to uh, shop from, and the rest of the things are not that difficult to get. In. Austrian cookery is not that elaborate. It only becomes very elaborate when it comes to baking. Baking, and again, I learned to bake quite early. And, and there are things that are simple. I mean, anybody can make a passable blitzer torta, but if you want to make something more elaborate, then I've actually had my wife uh, helping me make from my son an Esther Hassett torta. That requires a lot of work. That is something that does require time and effort and putting really a solid. At least afternoon. It's not full day with somebody helping you in the kitchen.
0: Can you actually describe to our listeners and also for me what the torta was?
4: Sure. Look, uh, the way that you do an Esther torta is you first grind your almonds, mix them with egg whites, and you actually make really thin pancakes, which you have to bake one by one and bake about a dozen of them. Then separately you'll make your hazelnut cream, which you're going to layer in uh, in between uh, this very thin pancakes made with uh, an egg white and almond. Then on top of it, you're going to put an icing that is fundamentally made with icing, sugar, and lemon. Then once that, that is done, you're going to cover the sides and put almonds in it as if it was uh, like a porcupine in a way. And then on top of it, you're going to make uh, your chocolate glazing. You make circles. And once that you make your concentric circles with a stick or the tip of a knife or whatever, you're going to turn them into something that looks a bit like a cobweb. So it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's, it's delicious. And again, once that you finish, it's not ready to eat. You put it away in the fridge for at least a day. And then two or three days later, it's even better. So it's a lot of work. It's fantastic, but it's a lot of work. It's the sort of thing that you generally find in pastry shops in Vienna. And again, people in Austria are very peculiar about their cakes. They tend to, if they offer something, you have to return the plate with something in it. You can never return the plate empty. And if they send you a dolos or some elaborate cake, and you return it with... Something like Elinza thought that people are going to be deeply offended. It's like, I worked full day for you, and you worked 45 minutes for me. That's not fair.
2: (laughs) I really want to go on uh, asking questions about cooking. But I wanted to ask you about Ireland and food. And you've been coming to Ireland, I guess, since 1999. Have you seen the evolution? Or tell us about your experiences of Irish food and Irish producers, because I think it's been such a, there's been so many changes. I think the first time I came to Ireland was in 98, so the same, and I'm just constantly amazed at so many exciting things happening. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, well, I've been deeply impressed by the change, not only in food, but other in other aspects. When we arrived in 1999, uh, Um, towns like Clonmelon, where Kilua is, or Kales. They were like ghost towns. They were uh, really sad, you know. And now you see them, and they're beautiful towns, and they're like thriving. And so the change from when we arrived to how they are now has been so completely incredible. And I'm very happy because, as I said, I have always had a very, very deep... uh, love for Kells. I have always think Kells is my hometown. My son used to come to head for school, so obviously I I was in Kells every day, dropping him, and uh, I developed such a deep connection with Kells, eh, and obviously with Clone Melon, and the evolution in those towns had been so massive, and we have seen the same thing at a bigger level in, in food. Maybe in that respect, Alan might have better insight.
4: Uh, Well, being the cook, I have to say that shopping here 20 years ago was a difficult and sad experience Oh yeah. because you would go and there wasn't that much variety of anything. And a lot of things that I wanted, I couldn't find them. Then somebody pointed out that uh, Kevin Sheridan had opened a shop where I could find really nice cheese. And I was really excited about it. And I started going there, buying stuff. And then super value completely changed from being a supermarket that looked more like a hard discounter <laughs> to actually having been specialty foods, having a good variety. So even from shopping, the experience has been very different. Restaurant-wise, again, massive change. And uh, when we started coming, not only here, but <laughs> my first experience, then in 2000, when we moved to London uh, from New York. I remember, and again, the Goldman Sachs Canteen is probably not the best place to savor great food. But in those days, the first day that I go down for lunch, I see they're making pasta. I thought, well, that cannot be too bad, so I asked for a bowl. And the next thing is the guys that are serving it. Yes. Chips on your pasta, mate. As he was pouring them, I was oh. what the hell is this man doing? Chips <laughs> on my pasta. What is this? And nearly want to throw it back at him. And anyway, here when we came, again, the typical thing was 20 things piled on one plate and with five different types of potatoes in them and uh, not much care. Then we started seeing an evolution. I remember, again, distinctly shortly after we had come here, when Porik White opened uh, the forge uh, in Ross and we started going there. And again, it was really nice to see that somebody was actually caring to do something nicely. And then obviously the change in Dublin, been amazing. Then, you know, I think that we went for the first time to Patrick in. Just opened, and then obviously Square One, and then all the great restaurants that have appeared. Mm. So it's a massive change compared to what it was.
1: Do you like to eat out in restaurants? Like in Dublin, do you still travel up and go out and eat it? Eat out a lot?
4: Yes, I actually <laughs> very peculiar eating habits. I eat only once a day at lunchtime. So uh, we used to go out more for dinner. Now since I only eat once a day, we do a lot less of that. And again, unfortunately. Uh, many of the better restaurants here don't open for lunch, which is something that I absolutely hate. (laughs) Because, again, I find that if I eat at night, my sleep suffers dramatically. And when I eat, because I eat only once a day, I eat. It's an embarrassing... It's a true embarrassment (laughs) looking at me eating And my friends say that it's cheaper to buy me a car than to invite me for lunch.
3: (laughs) You were going to say something. Yes, I wanted to make a special mention on the evolution of food. Um... To Olivia Doff, because a few years ago, I cannot remember which year it was, she said, Oh, we're doing this of the Boeing Valley, you know, and we're going to do a a dinner at Hedford Hedford School. So I remember it was the first time we came across something a little more sophisticated. And I did like it. I did like it. And I thought, Oh, this is very good. But then. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but it's not that I was not impressed at the, at the ingredients. I was not impressed at the cooking of them. Okay. Okay. But then, I don't know, a few years later, we had another invitation to, the, to, to, here, to, to head for our uh, arms hotel. Yeah. And, you know, it was similar to, to what we had yesterday. So we sat down. It, it was a long table. And then I started eating every dish. And I just couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. The quality of how it was served, Mm -hmm. of everything. You know, at first I saw, oh, black pudding. No, I'm not going to have it. And then I said, I'll taste it. Oh, my God, I've never tasted such a most delicious black pudding uh, as I remember. I I don't think it was Tom Doherty's. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Hugh McGuire's. It was Hugh McGuire. And every dish. And I said, wow, I've never imagined coming this far
1: yeah mm-hmm. and so uh, seen
3: it, uh, oh I saw the evolution I'm telling you that day with every dish that we ate I was more and more impressed mm-hmm. at what the Boeing Bali has done for yeah the quality of producers the quality the of the, is but also uh, I mean if, if they do it right it's just the best yeah. really and we've seen we've seen the best and now Ireland it's up there I think I Know That Face is
1: a movie podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network, hosted by me, Stephen Porzio, and me, Andrew Carroll.
2: Our show is all about character actors, the type of performers you'll see pop up in supporting roles in blockbusters, the type of people you know the faces, but not the names. Each episode, we pick one particular character actor and
1: discuss a couple of their movies, shining a light on the performer's career while giving listeners plenty of movie recommendations. So the show is a must for cinema lovers. Subscribe to I Know That Face wherever you get podcasts and follow us on Twitter at I Know That Face p one well, you yourselves have become producers and I suppose we should go on to Kalua and ask you a little bit about that but um, before we kind of I suppose talk about about Kahlua itself and and the pr- food pr- produce that you make there, tell us a little bit about um, how you came to how you came to Kalua, how you found it and why you decided to buy it.
4: Well the truth is that it was sheer madness And when my second daughter was born, I took my eldest daughter on a trip. I thought, my mother-in-law is going to come, when she and I didn't get along that well, so I thought, let me take my daughter, and I leave Lorena with the baby and her mother. And we went to Scotland, and we stayed in a castle, and Alexander was three at the time, When Lorena thought that I was hopping mad. She had not turned four, she was about to turn four. She thought that I was hopping mad, crossing the Atlantic with a three-year-old. Anyway, we had the best of times. So a couple of years later, she said, Daddy, you have to take me again to a castle. Uh, so we came to Ireland. We stayed in Drumoland. And by then, been convincing a five-year-old that buying a castle is a good idea. is not that difficult. <laughs> and uh, Alexandra and I decided that we should buy a castle. So <laughs> we started looking. We visited a few properties. Nothing that really caught my eye. Or admit my budget at the time, which was very limited. And then back in New York, we saw on the internet that Killua Castle was for sale. So it, I called somebody on the other end of the line, spoke a strange language, nothing similar to English that i ever heard. So I thought, okay, I have to go investigate <laughs> because it's not being very helpful. Uh, came to Clamellon, met uh, Thomas Kane, And it took us the better part of three years to negotiate price. Uh, And I would keep coming almost every quarter. As I said, we graduated from tea to whiskey. First, tea was an offer. By the end, whiskey was an offer. (laughs) Uh, His mother, uh, the late Mary Kane, used to make uh, soda bread and smoke some sandwiches for me and bake the apple tart the traditional way.
1: Lovely.
4: So we became very good friends. And eventually we agreed on a price. And we also agreed that when the time was right, Tom would sell me the land, and everybody told me I was a complete idiot thinking that was ever going to happen. Tom was a gentleman, and that happened. He sold me the land eventually. And when their mother died, his younger brother Michael actually stayed in the old bungalow. Now Michael's stepdaughter is my son's girlfriend. Oh, so it has all nice. ended up in a very happy note, and that's how it eventually happened. When we bought the ruin, and I distinctly remember Lorena asking me, "Do you have money to do this project?" I said, "You know the answer. I don't have the money." But at the time, I was forty years old. I thought, "I hope I can make more money in my life."
1: Yeah.
4: So did I have a goal of finishing it or anything in mind? No. I thought, let's embark on this and see where the road takes us.
1: Wow. What was your reaction to that, Lorena, that it might not even get finished, that you're just, let's see what happens. Were you, did you go with the dream as well, as much as as Alan was selling it to you?
3: I think that has been the secret why we've been together 33 years, (laughs) Uh, that he says crazy things. And I said, okay. (laughs) (laughs)
1: and one of the things we learned today so um for our listeners um it took you 21 years is it or 22 years 22 years to renovate and it's an absolute remarkable renovation of the castle itself but even the grounds and the farm and everything are just absolutely beautiful um so uh tell us myth or um or truth uh, Walter Raleigh uh, planted the very first potato uh, ever in Ireland on your on your land on that piece of land.
4: Of course, makes wonderful sense. Raleigh sails to Virginia, gets a potato, sails back to Ireland, <laughs> doesn't stop in carry her he owned land, goes to Dublin, gets on a horse or a carriage or goes no what, rides to Westmeath, climbs a hill, plants a potato. If of people course. say that's what happened, it must have happened. <laughs> <laughs> now, the reality is somewhat different. The Chapmans did arrive to Ireland uh, with Walter Raleigh, as soldiers uh, with Raleigh, and they came from Leicester. They ended up settling in what today is the Dingle Peninsula, and they stayed there until they actually lost their lands as a result of the downfall of Raleigh, and. Then eventually they became soldiers. Soldiers unfortunately, really. they fought uh, during the English Civil War with Inchquin for the Royalists. When Inchquin was defeated, rather than joining the Irish side of the revolution, they decided to join Cromwell. And eventually, in lieu of payment, Cromwell gave them the lands of Kilua and they acquired a bit more land from other soldiers. But a hundred years later, saying that you had received your land from Cromwell was not that great. Cromwell was not (laughs) such a nice person. So uh, they had to make a better story. And Sir Thomas Chapman, who was never lacking in imagination, said that they had received the lands of Killua from their maternal ancestor, Sir Walter Raleigh. So Raleigh had now evolved from being the general or captain or whatever that they came with to Ireland to uh, their maternal ancestor. And uh, he gave them the lands... And, of course, uh, they had to build uh, a folly, which was the old Hiloa castle where Sir Walter Raleigh spent the night when he planted the potato. And then they erected the obelisk in the memory of Raleigh. And then, of course, the locals added the legend.
0: I love the fact that um, there's still sort of dodgy,
3: imaginative people, like, in the
0: past? Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> Never um, let the truth get in the way of a good story.
1: This is it, absolutely. And um, tell us a bit about the farm and about your the animals that you have there um, for our listeners and also then how you've become producers as well and what you produce there.
4: Sure. Look, Kilua like many other places have been farmed very intensively and also the land had suffered a lot because in the 1920s to the 1940s it had been a golf club so all the timber had been taken off the land all the hedges had been taken off so it had become what Anthony our farm manager calls the coldest farm in Ireland <laughs> and we started working on that trying to make sure that we could Regener- uh, regenerate the land as much as possible. So we planted nine kilometers of hedges, about 8,000 trees, tried to recover the parkland nature uh, of uh, the landscape, put in three ponds, stretched the lake. So massive amount of work first just to recreate, again, uh, a proper space where you could farm in a more intelligent way. Then we thought, okay, if we had gone through all this investment, let's try to do things slightly different, take a few risks, and not go to maximize this year's return on cash, but actually try to think, I'm an economist by training, try to think about capital, and nobody in their sane mind would destroy their capital to produce more this year. Then you try to keep whatever you're doing here, Plant and equipment, your machinery, whatever is, try to keep it safe. In the case of agriculture, your main capital is your land and your livestock. So we said, okay, let's make sure that we start by investing in the right capital and making sure that we protect our capital first. Then we'll see what yield we get from that. Let's protect the capital first. So stop using fertilizers, stop using pesticides stop using any form of weed killers, and uh, upgrade significantly the livestock. And again, we realized very quickly, trial and error, experimenting, we saw that commercial sheep, for example, uh, got ill all the time, when it was not excess cobalt, it was excess selenium, it was lack of copper, it was always a problem, and always there was somebody ready. Usually, from Monsanto to sell you what the solution would be. And I said, okay, thank you very much. (laughs) Not eager to buy it. Uh, And then, next experiment was, let's try with native breeds and how they do. And immediately, we found out that those didn't get sick, those lit very well, those could actually be wintered out. So, significant savings all around, everywhere, and animals that, on top of that, are better adapted to the environment, live better, and don't harm the environment, at least not as much. So we went for red deer, Irish mole cattle, a few dexters, Jacob sheep, and as an experiment, again, uh, more first thinking about conservation. But of course, we will eat them eventually. The old Irish goats.
0: Um, Can you... Do you have a favorite meat that you rear? You know, if you were to pick one, would it be the venison? Would it be, you know, the beef? Which one and why?
4: First of all, let me say, (laughs) as a meat producer, and I take this very seriously, and I think that meat should be a luxury product. It's not something to be eaten every day. I think that for the health of the planet in first place, and for our own personal health, I think that meat should not be mass-produced and should be a luxury item. Uh, Having said that, I love meat, and I must say that I still believe that venison is the meat of kings. Mm -hmm. And if you ask me, I would actually go for the neck Mm slow-cooked. To me, that is the epitome of night meat.
2: Thank you. And he's moved on to cooking, obviously cooking is his yeah. favorite <laughs> pastime. Um, we wanted to ask you about your next venture, so you're moving, uh, you're staying as producers, but you're uh, planning to open a new restaurant and you've brought some Spanish chefs. Can you tell us a little bit about your project and what ignited that desire to be restaurateurs in essence?
4: Well Blanca, first of all, I thought that in, in the food chain, obviously, the more you move to value added, the better off you are. Uh, and it's a hard road. And We first had the animals, then again, capital investments. So we invested in having our own processing plant, which given all the EU requirements and whatever, it's an incredibly costly affair. Uh, but, okay, it's done. I would love to move into ready-to-eat items. Uh, And again, I think that coming from Spain, you can appreciate that the variety that you can have is far more than just uh, salami and chorizo. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that there is still a lot of way to go here in that area. And it's a great opportunity. But again, it's a costly affair. So it will happen eventually, but it is something that it's... uh, for the future, probably not for the very distant future, but for the future. And then the next step obviously was uh, a restaurant, where we could actually showcase some of our own products, but also products from our partners in the Boyne Valley and other producers in Ireland. And I thought very much of the idea of having what you would call in Spain, cocina de producto. So Mm -hmm. cookery based on local produce, where the Mm -hmm. local produce is really the star of of a meal. And again, uh, I spoke with Olivia at the time, and with many friends, with Porik White, and finding young chefs in Ireland, right now, who are truly interested in producing high quality food, rather than just an institutional job, working for a school, or a hospital, or whatever, it's very, very difficult, very hard. So. After looking unsuccessfully and finding either the guys that are more interested in their Instagram or the guys that are, quite frankly, just institutional cooks, I thought, okay, let me try other avenues. And funny enough, uh, a friend of mine has a lady working with her, and her brother was a young guy working uh, with jean Roque at so... She introduced me to him, and then he introduced me to a friend of his working at AVAC with uh, Jordi Cruz. And eventually, the two guys are the ones that you have uh, now at Kilua. And again, I think that if you give opportunity to young people, it can be very interesting. And what I thought is, let's go for something. It's not going to be doing Spanish food in Ireland, but it's going to be cookery based on... traditional methods, which are fundamentally French, uh, but with a nod to Ireland, both in terms of the local ingredients, but also applying new and traditional techniques to Irish dishes, and trying to do a slightly more elaborate version of them, but staying true to the real recipe. And that is what we're trying to do. Uh, We have been uh, getting the place ready, and doing uh just private uh dry runs for ourselves in the near future i want to do a soft opening so that we can start working for the public but in a limited way and then when we're ready and when we can have our staff trained and really feel that we're ready for prime time then we'll do the real opening
1: and we m- met the chefs today, and they're really lovely um, men. And and they even cooked for us a little bit, and just a few snacks. And it was really lovely to see what they're doing. I like can already see. Sorry, yeah.
2: we can't disclose what they were. Oh, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to
1: say. <laughs> Obviously, I wouldn't say anything like that. But no, just to even see a flare, a flare there of, um, you know, how they're exploring the ingredients and the food. And I hope that they, and I think they will bring. Something exciting, you know, to the ingredients. Um, I know that they have visited Bally McKenney as well, down to see Maria and um her husband and the farm and 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 work with the potatoes. So lots of different producers to explore. Is it important for you that they um like explore the Irish producers and Irish food? And are you helping them in that journey of getting to know Irish food? Because I presume Coming from Spain, they may not have as good a knowledge of, of Irish food or, or what's available here to them.
4: And it has been very funny because it has been an interaction that goes two ways. And Pork has been introducing them to Irish producers and Irish food and better versions of Irish food. And, um, and there have been fascinating conversations around our kitchen table and uh, with Pork asking them about techniques and whatever. and. Chavi in particular, uh, was saying how they use uh, in Avak sous vide to actually deal with huge numbers of customers and things have to be cooked to precision. And it was very interesting for those of you who were yesterday at the dinner, pork actually cooked uh, the moiled beef sous vide 24 hours at 52 degrees and then yesterday just brought temperature At 56 degrees for an hour, and finished uh, it just by searing it. So, again, the secret of uh, having beef that was not what I called wedding beef, that uh, (laughs) great stuff that has been cooked beyond human consumption and that is drier than you uh, should was precisely applying uh, sous vide to be able to manage. Again, I think there are nicer ways to cook the meat, to be perfectly honest with you. But I think that if you have to cook steak for, I don't know, 150 people, however many we were, then it is a great way of dealing with it Mm. because certainly if you roast it, the chances are that it would have been dried beyond consumption would have been very high.
1: Is it a dream come true for you having spoken to you for this podcast episode, you know, to hear your love of food and your background in cooking and how much you enjoy cooking in particular, Alan, um, is it a dream come true to now, well, own your own restaurant and be able to do all these things and be part of it from the conception to when it launches and seeing being able to see people come in and enjoy it? Well, is that kind of a dream of your own?
4: Let's say that it doesn't come as a surprise. I've been talking about this for the longest time. So it's not something that I came up with uh, last year. It's something that has been in my mind forever. And again, it's a sort of thing that you have it here. You have to turn it a million times before you get to the right concept, before you find the right team, before you can roll it out. So it's work in progress, but it's definitely not recent work in progress.
1: And Lorena, is, um, where do you kind of envision Kilua Castle in the future? I mean, how do you see it in five years or ten years um, in progression of your
3: journey with it? Yes. Um, well, uh, one of the things that I like the most about what we're doing in, in Kilua is that everything is connected and everything is a complement of everything else. And even though at the beginning it sounds like something completely detached like the restoration we did and bringing back the building and doing the, the landscape, it sounds like, oh, it doesn't really... But, but it is. It's all part of healing this land. We heal the building. We're healing the land. We're connecting everything together. So it has an image and a, a, and, and a meaning, all in one, not just detached. So I think, uh, I, I think it's just going to come round circle, Uh, yes, hopefully the restaurant will do well. And we we want to continue connected to the restaurant and connected to the restoration to keep on restoring the rest of the lands, have orchards, have uh, vegetables maybe, have other things. So it's all part of all this healing of this land uh, that has taken place in 22 years.
4: And one thing people think 22 years has been a long time. The plan has been more like a 200-year plan. <laughs> so in even sort of something that I always like to mention, the way that we hold the property, it's through the Family Foundation where the children and the descendants are the beneficiaries, but only to the extent that they want or can keep Hiloa. What they can't do is put their parents in an old people's home and sell it. And, again, if at any point in time they're not interested or they can't do it or none of them left, the ultimate beneficiary is the Irish state because the idea was that we wouldn't do this to then see it auctioned off and the collection, the art collection, dismembered and whatever. The idea was build it to stay. So the ultimate beneficiary should be the community. And, again, uh, we were... I think it was 2007, if my memory serves me right, when the National Trust for Ireland was created, and 2004, okay, there you go. And, and uh, Terry Dooley at the University of Minot made a big event, and uh, Bertie Ahern at the time went and inaugurated it, and whatever, and then it never got funded. Uh, I thought, okay, how can you actually deal with this? Well, mm-hmm. make them the beneficiary of Kilua. And again, the idea is try to have a reasonable endowment to go with it, so that it's not a burden to anybody. But if it's a burden, it should be a burden to the Irish state because it should be a benefit for the community, and it should be something that stays there for a long time.
1: Yeah. Go
3: ahead. Yes, and and, and in the spirit of that Alan is is talking about, we also, in every step of the way, we are trying to make everything that it doesn't become a burden. Uh, we are. Uh, when we were doing the castle, uh, we have uh, geothermal energy and we have solar panels. so uh, we we looked in every step of the way that whatever we did was not going to be a burden for future generations, so because these places went into disrepair and they went into oblivion because of the burden they they represented and this is one of the things that we 're doing in Kilua not only we're creating uh, um, sources where it can sustain itself but also uh, in in the case of uh, energy and you know heating and whatever we're um almost um fuel free or how would you say self-sufficient, self-sufficient. self-sufficient yeah which i excellent. think it's it's it, it's a very important part to give it a future mm.
1: did you have any other questions for the guys it's been an absolute delight speaking to you and i love that you speak about being such a you know that the, impo- the community as is, is as important to you as you are to it I know from speaking to Olivia and and others here over the festival that you know everyone's so excited by Clua to have a, a part of Boyne Valley and And, you know, and by you and everything you're doing with such enthusiasm and passion. And it really comes across when we're speaking to you. I love your stories and just wish you the best for the future with this. And thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure.
4: Thank you very much. And one last thing that I'd like to mention is precisely being well integrated to the community. For example, during COVID, we started opening the grounds to the people. And one of the wonderful things is that instead of us having to chase people and tell them behave properly, don't litter, don't do this, don't do that. It's the people of Clamellon. And the more elderly they are, the more they take the role of being the enforcers and making sure that everybody behaves properly, which is wonderful because instead of you having to be fighting with people, you have a community on your side.
2: Excellent, I love that. Thank you so much. It was really lovely meeting you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.